Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, honest and authentic conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes, and thanks for listening today. I'm not sure if you can call Anais Mitchell under-the-radar, but um, she fits into the category that that we're going for here on Basic Folk. Before we get into uh, our intro and describing what we're going to talk about with Anais, first, I want to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management, who suggests that if you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. And getting back to Anais Mitchell. Anais Mitchell is a singer songwriter originally from Vermont, now based in New York. And she is about to have her first musical theater production, Town, hit Broadway. It is starting previews on March 22nd at the Walter Kerr Theater, and tickets are on sale now. Anais has put her entire self into this project for the last 12 years. This is a huge deal that uh, this is coming to Broadway. Town is a folk opera based on the myth of Orpheus and features... Uh, almost like a devilish character named Hades, who is king of the underworld. And it kind of has this post-apocalyptic yet depression-era vibe to the entire show. I saw it like a long time ago in 2006 when it was a community production being put on in Vermont. And it has since like gotten new songs and expanded. And it's just a completely different show. And so happy to to see it going to Broadway. Anyway, so we get into, of course, we get into Hades Town. Um, we get into Anais's early life, and also we have like a really interesting conversation about third and fourth wave feminism that that's uh, pretty wild. And uh, you know, we also touch upon the song "Why We Build the Wall," which got Anais a lot of attention with the 2016 election due to Trump's um, uh, campaign promise to. Uh, build a wall along the border of Mexico, and people found Anais's song, and it resonated with people in a different way. Uh, and kind of talk about her relationship to h- what happened and how she's feeling about it now. Um, but I thought before we get into the conversation, we could listen to a clip of Anais doing "Why We Build the Wall," which is a song. Keep in mind that she wrote like over a decade ago. But this is from her album XOA. Um, there's also a version of Greg Brown singing this song from the 2010 Town album that uh, is excellent. But I wanted to you know, give you a sense of what Aeneas sounds like if you aren't familiar. So let's hear it, Why We Build the Wall from Aeneas Mitchell, and we'll get to our conversation with her on Basic Folk. Why do we build a wall? 
children, my children, why do we build a wall? Why do we build a wall? We build a wall to keep us free. That's why we build a wall. We build a wall to keep us free. How does the wall keep us free? My children, my children, how does the wall keep us free? Cool. Thank you for doing this. Great to be here, Cindy. Uh, I've got a lot of good questions for you. You're gonna you're gonna love this interview. Very excited. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about your dad first because he uh, seems like a very interesting man. Is his name Don? Mm-hmm. Don you got Mitchell. It. He is uh, an author and a professor at Middlebury College and a sheep farmer, which is I hope to not talk too much about this because I am very interested in this aspect of your life uh, where you're raised on a sheep farm because we've known each other for a long time and I don't know if we've ever discussed the specifics of the sheep farm so I've heard you give the number of ewes and two rams like 64 (laughs) ewes and two rams and 126 lambs right I think there used to be 65 ewes and two rams and they've they've downsized a little bit since those days. But that was always the, yeah. What kind of sheep were they? Um, okay, I think they were a cross between Dorset and Finn. Mm, oh, phew, my heart just exploded. <laughs> um, okay, so for those of you listening at home who don't know, Finn sheep are a wool breed that have like really, really curly wool. And Dorset, I think, are like a, um, they're, I mean, all sheep are wool breeds, but they're more like meat breeds. Cindy, you're blowing my mind yeah. right now. How do you know that? Well, I was in 4-H for like 10 oh, years MG. In, the, in the sheep club, and I had a Finn and a Dorset, wow. two different like at the diff- two different sheep, you know. Yeah. So my Finn, her name was Spud. She was a natural colored, and she had a white face and like the rings around her eyes, like wow. Spud's Mackenzie. And then I had several Dorsets. That was our first like purebred. So Spud was not like a purebred Finn. And then I also had a Romney. For a little while. Wow. Have you ever had one of those? No. You're not supposed to wash them. And I one time washed her and it like ruined her wool. <laughs> so so this is what I was afraid was going to happen. Is yeah. No, I'm so into this. this. I'm so, I've never gone this deep um, before about sheep. So how did the sheep farm start? Right. Oh, So my parents were hippies. And they both were raised in suburban environments. They hitchhiked to California for the summer of love, and they were, like, full on. There was some, like, whole earth catalog that came out that said, all you hippies should go back to the land and, like, start a farm. Wait, what's a whole earth catalog? It was the whole earth catalog. It was um, a big catalog with, I don't know what, seeds maybe? Oh, okay, okay. Um, This is just, like, the family lore. You know, they saw in the whole earth catalog that there was land in Vermont. And they moved to Vermont, and they bought this farm. 
Um, but it was like an ethos, you know, it was a whole move they made. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of people in Vermont, actually, that moved there in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, you were calling them back to the landers, totally. which I had not heard of before. That's a thing. So it's like a movement that happened. Yeah. Is there a Wikipedia page? I bet about, there is. Okay. Yeah, it I'll was like, it let's later. go back to the land, and if you did that, you were a back to the lander. Okay. And so they did. They bought this farm. Um, they also, like, my dad had started writing in college. They, they met at Swarthmore College. My dad had a book published when he was still in school, which is so crazy to me to think about. Then one of his early books was made into a movie, and they suddenly like had some money from that. They first actually moved to this island in Greece that was a thing. Like a bunch of expatriates lived there, and Leonard Cohen and lived Leonard, on this island. So were they friends with Leonard Cohen? I don't know. Friend might be a strong word, but they <laughs> went to some parties that he was at. Whoa. Uh, it was called Idra, this island. Mm-hmm. And then they, I guess with what was left of the money, they bought this farm in Vermont. And um, that's where I grew up. And it's so weird to, you know, that Vermont was like my whole world for so long and still is like really important to me. And it's just like some choice that my parents made when they were. They just saw it in a catalog. Totally, totally. Right. Um, so your mom worked for Howard Dean? Yeah. You know everything about my family. This is amazing. Yeah. My mom um, started a center for pregnant teenagers when... I was a kid, like that was what she did. Um, she started with a friend and it started small and it became like really successful and other sort of centers in different states and even different countries have been modeled after it. And then at a certain point, she sort of, I think, saw the limitations of what she could do outside of sort of the um, government. Like she just thought uh, it would be great to be in the sort of bureaucracy that was making the choices that were affecting institutions or organizations like the ones she had started. And somehow she got this job as the, so she was the deputy secretary of health and human services under Howard Dean. Wow. Yeah. Growing up, what kind of parents were they like? Um, Yeah. Well, we were raised on this farm kind of in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have a TV. That was a thing. My mom was like very serious about that. My grandparents lived on the same farm in a different house, and they had a TV that had two channels on it, so I would go down there and, like, watch. My mom and dad were, like, so supportive and also, like, hands-off in a weird way. Like, me and my brother spent a lot of time running around in the woods. I have a five-year-old brother. or uh, No, sorry. He's five years older than me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, he's five years older. And he's, like, a super creative, interesting guy. All through my childhood, he would, like, entertain me. And yeah. I truly believe there was, you know, elves in the woods and that they were writing messages on rocks that we were going to go discover. Yeah. Things like that. And I was totally fascinated by him and entertained by him a lot of the time. Yeah. There was a phase where I was embarrassed by him because he would wear, like, a skirt, you know, like, pick me up at school and, like, his weird hair. and like. But then um, we passed through that, and I'm, like, so tight with him. Now I, like, it's, um, it was very special. Oh, that's cool. Um, so what role did music play in your young life? So I I studied violin from a kind of an early age when when I, when I was seven, uh, a woman came to our school and she was wearing a beautiful dress. I think the gown was like part of it, and she played the violin. I said that's what I'm going to do, and I started to take violin lessons. And um, I think that's like important somehow to my like melodic kind of 
development as a kid, although I don't play violin anymore. I mm-hmm. wish I did. Like, I've tried to pick it back up. But there's my parents, you know, love of music. They're not musicians themselves. But my dad can sing, and he... Um, and he loves music and he loves lyrics as a writer. You know, he's, he would always, like, point them out to me, like, point out the lyric that he loved. And he and my brother would kind of, like, put on an album and then they would sing every word. This was the thing that they did. Where they would, it would be, like, Velvet Underground, you know. And they would sing, like, the, every word of every song. Um, so I think at, at a young age I was impressed by that. And I sort of thought of that as a cool... I don't, the, the, the lyrics were as important as like the books my dad was writing, you know. Right. Yeah, and then and like other than that, I was raised with a lot of weird like folk music that kind of like hippies were into. Like, well, there's like the Rise Up Singing collection of folk songs, and um, my mom was and is a Quaker, and there was these like Quaker songs that I learned, and I was part of this. Um, solstice pageant that happened every year called Night Fires. That was um, it's like a collection of songs and dance and there was so many songs and kind of like uh, from around the world that I learned through that thing. Mm. There's a lot of that sort of global thing in Vermont. There's like village harmony if you know what that is and no. shape notes singing. There's a lot of that community get together and sing type of yeah vibe. I don't know firsthand about that but I have heard of that before where a friend of mine, the group of parents would all get together and bring all of the kids together and they had like their own songbook that they would sing and play music out of. I love that stuff. I've always yeah. loved it. I love Christmas carols. Like we were singing some carols in the car on the way here. It was really fun because my daughter like now knows some of the, you know, some of the lyrics to them. I also just always loved sing-alongs, like sing-song time, like on the bus in high school when you like, go into a track meet and everyone sing like a Peter Gabriel song or something. Oh yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. We yeah, uh, yeah we would like on the way to like band competitions, everybody would <coughs> sing along like idiots. So were you a track star in high school? Oh, not a star. <laughs> not a star, but I did. Yeah, I was better as a freshman. I, I was fast as a freshman and then it all went downhill <laughs> as I got older. I guess I read that you were like running and listening to something so you're still running oh yeah yeah I do um I know I'm in the so uh, like I'm in the room with Austin Nevins we are in the room with Austin Nevins who is playing with me tonight and um me and Austin um text each other an emoji if we have gotten exercise that day what which one it's the hands it's the one that's like hands double hands double hands Hands. Yeah. It's the longest I've ever done any exercise program. We've probably been doing it for like a year. Wow. Yeah. Um, you started writing songs when you were 17. Mm-hmm. Um, since your dad is such an accomplished writer, if it was intimidating to start to write because of his work? I wonder if um, it was less intimidating because it was songs and that's not his realm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's actually it's been interesting to my relationship with him now because we like to talk about creative things and the creative process and the sort of worlds that we're in. But it's very different. So there's there's common ground, but it's not like he can be like giving me advice about like, well, you should work with this record label or something like that. Or, you know, we like live in different worlds that way. All right. I have this question about feminism. Okay. That I'm just wondering your opinion on it because I've thought about this a little bit recently. 
Um, so you were very inspired by female songwriters in the 90s, Dar Williams, Ani DeFranco, Tori Amos. Mm-hmm. They were early heroes of yours. So I'm wondering if you recall how people were feeling about feminism in the 90s versus today. It seems to me that in the 90s, being of like people were like, oh, I'm not a feminist because being a feminist just meant that you like hated men and you think that women should like take over hmm. where people misunderstood the definition of feminism. Hmm. And I feel like some of those like very strong female musicians had this weird relationship with feminism. Hmm. Hmm. Oh my God. There's so much in that question, which is like really interesting to talk about. To like take apart the parts in my brain. Because I also have had a trajectory in terms of like my relationship with it. And I would say that back in the 90s, and Ani DeFranco obviously was like a feminist icon. I mean, she was saying it all, right? Right. Well, yeah, but Ani DeFranco is kind of like an artist that other women would look at and be like, you're, you're like, you're the reason that I don't want to be like, I don't want to label myself a feminist because you're like too loud or whatever. You know, right. you're too aggressive about it. Uh-huh. You know, because she was she was really pushing the the boundaries of what right. of what it was to be a woman. Right. I'm remembering that I was like maybe more vocal about it and more interested in the identity of that when I was younger in the '90s and maybe in like the early 2000s. And I would have like not shaved my legs and I would have like shaved my head and like talked about it more. And then, right, there's some kind of. What is third wave? Is that like our generation? Third wave is like you can still yeah. Let's look up third wave because I think that (laughs) I'm I'm just gonna. I think what it means is like you can still be feminist and you shave your legs and you wear makeup, but you're still feminist and da da da. And then like that is also confusing because then you sort of slide down the slope of like oh I'm totally like conforming to my to society standards for wow right third wave. Should I read this? Yeah, go ahead. Third wave feminism is an iteration of the feminist movement that began in the early 90s, United States, and continued until the fourth wave began around 2012. Hey, this is really interesting for us, right? Wow, that's really recent. Born in the 60s and 70s as members of Generation X and grounded in the civil rights advances of the second wave, third wave feminists embraced individualism and diversity and sought to redefine what it meant to be a feminist. According to feminist scholar Elizabeth Evans, the, conf- the quote, the confusion is, in some respects, its defining feature. The third wave is traced, should we just go for this? Because yeah. whether this goes on the interview or not, right. it's interesting. The third wave is traced to the emergence of the riot girl feminist punk subculture in Olympia, Washington. Mm. Anita Hill's televised testimony in 1991 oh, to an okay. all-male, all-white Senate Judiciary Committee wow. that Clarence Thomas nominated for the Supreme Court of the United States had sexually harassed her. The term third wave is credited to Rebecca Walker, who responded to Thomas's appointment in the Supreme Court with an article in Ms. Magazine, Becoming the Third Wave. She wrote, So I write this as a plea to all women, especially women of my generation. Let Thomas's confirmation... Oh my God, this is so amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. Just all coming around again. We're talking about feminism for those who just entered the room. For those who are tuning into Basic Folk, we're trying to do the interview and hang out at the same time. <laughs> and it's working. Let Thomas's confirmation serve to remind you, as it did me, that the fight is far from over. Let this dismissal of a woman's experience move you to anger. Turn that outrage into political power. Do not vote for them unless they work for us. Do not have sex with them. Do not break bread with them. So that's third wave. 
that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but so my understanding was that second wave was like, I know nothing, FYI. I didn't even take a class in college. But that second wave was like our whole identity is like forged in the fire of like we have to, you know, fight. we're fighting for our lives here, you know. And that third wave was like that the criticism was it was a little more la-di-da because it's like, oh, like it's kind of equal. We can now not be so... It's the third aggressive. wave is in the, the, the 90s. That goes back to like kind of my original point of like, up, up to 2012, and what's the fourth wave? Okay, should we try to find that out? Yeah. Do you, can you just look up fourth wave <laughs> feminism? <laughs> well, okay, so for International Women's Day, the station that I work for, we played all women all day long. Mm -hmm. And our demo is people who are in their 40s and 50s, and so we play a lot of stuff from the 90s. So I'm like, yeah. I'm going to go online. I'm going to find all these, like, inspirational quotes from, like, Tori Amos and Bjork about, right. like, you know, and Courtney Love about, like, you know, being a feminist and, like, what that means to them and how it's important to them. But I found, like, yeah. a couple of quotes that were, like, pretty off-putting about how Bjork, like, distanced herself from the right, feminist movement. Right. So did Courtney Love. And I know Tori Amos specifically, like, yeah. wouldn't play the Lilith Fair because she wanted to distance herself from that movement. So just quick thought about that is yeah. that I think there is also like on the part of Bjork I'm just thinking about some other interviews that I read with her just a reluctance to be grounded in the identity of like a female musician when she's just an awesome musician like she's just an amazing composer and she doesn't want to have to um I don't know I, I don't know so okay another thing is right I've been working on Haiti sound for so so long mm -hmm. it's different in music world like the th music theater world is actually still super male dominated like there's so few female composers in music theater mm. which is not something that I knew about but it is a reality like if you look at like the Tony Awards like you could count on one hand the number of women that have won that award for mm -hmm. composing actually like across the board for like for writing a book for no woman has ever won like sound design like there's a, there's all there's all these ways in which i don't know sometimes when i'm getting interviewed about being a woman in music theater i think like am i supposed to be like yeah women like we can do it da, da, da. but i also just want to be like i'm a music theater writer like i'm i don't want to have to right talk about it but i see yeah. why it's important also yeah so. Well, yeah, so maybe that's what happened in the 90s where, like, people like Bjork were like, why do I have to be a female musician? I'm just a musician. Totally. But then I just feel like the the people who, like, just want to squash the feminist movement and the people mm -hmm. who just are like, I just want to be treated, like, equal and not do any of the work anymore. Right. I think that sort of led to right. a misunderstanding. Yes. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't know if I had anything to add, but... Fourth wave. Fourth wave. Well, we found uh, out about the fourth it? wave. Okay. Fourth wave feminism is an approach to feminism that began around 2012 and is associated with the belief that all humans are equal. It heavily focuses on intersectionality. Yeah. Pushing for greater empowerment of traditionally marginalized groups in society, including women and girls. Hmm. And, that, and I bet oh. fourth wave also has to do with, like, non-binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could totally be. I wanted to say a thing, which is, so I have this five-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. and we there are these books that are very popular right now among little girls. They're called um, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Have you heard about this? 
No. They're wildly popular bestseller things. Like, they're collections of, like, they'll be a one-page kind of bio sort of written towards young kids about these, like, there'll be, like, your Hillary Clinton page, and there's, like, Beyonce, and then there's, like, Cleopatra and um, oh yeah Queen Elizabeth. There's all these different... Okay. And some are, like, artists or athletes or all these sort of women that have overcome their circumstances and and the narrative and it's beautiful and then there's also these beautiful portraits of them and Ramon is into it and like we read it it's beautiful and I and I love it but also the gist of all of the stories is like how hard it is like that like what these women have been up against you know mm. and then they overcame and in a weird way I'm not sure if I want that to be the tenor of the conversation with Ramona about what it is growing up to be growing up as a girl or a woman like I don't want her to know know. right she doesn't know that she's disadvantaged in any way right here's the narrative for you this is what it's going to be like yeah Yeah. and there's something about that right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean they're gonna she's gonna figure it out obviously yeah but but it might not be that hard or whatever, right. like it's yeah. I think you're. I think that instinct is right. Does it help her to see herself as part of a marginalized right. group? I, I don't know. That's an interesting. It's like when you're doing yoga and you're on your back and you're holding your leg in your arms and then you're pushing, <laughs> you're pushing your hand into your leg and your leg into your hand and then you let your hand, you let your hand win and then your leg comes closer to you. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like yeah. that. It's just like that. <laughs> I would like to talk about the search for belonging. Okay? Okay. Uh, I read this great quote from Sing Out. It says, Aeneas sings of love among the ruins, coming out of age to find yourself an outsider looking for the place you belong. So I think belonging and the search for belonging is pretty common in the human experience. And I think it can be very difficult. So what has been your relationship to the search for belonging? Mm. I remember when that when that thing came out, and I think um, I think it was right around when the Brightness record came out, and there were all these songs on that album that I think had something to do with me always feeling like I was born at the wrong time. Do you know? Yeah. And like having like grown up in this house, like got gotten very romantic notions about like books I'd read, and then you know coming into the world as if it's like a black and white. Image of I'm just I'm just imagining like Greenwich Village in the 1960s or <laughs> Paris in the 30s and like coming at it and then like the reality of it. Like I had that one song that had this line in it. I, I've t- completely like spaced out what the song is, but the line is like, maybe I came too early, maybe I came too late. I'm waiting in the shadows of the scaffolds of the old cafes where you told me to wait. You know, and just this idea of like. You you go looking for the scene and then it's like what is that? Is the KFC or you know, it's just not the same. Uh, so <laughs> does this make sense? Like, I think that's where that actual that quote came from was that yeah. album and that sort of sense of like not. But I think uh, yeah, a lot of playing music has been sort of a quest for the community of other people that are playing music, and it's like so important to be reminded of that because. A lot of the process of writing is like very solitary, and you're like in your room, you're trying to make something happen. And um, but it feels so good to play music with other people and for other people. Yes, and you share it. you have been very intentional about 
collaborating and being very loyal to your collaborators. Mm -hmm. Michael Chorney and Austin and Austin's brother, Peter Nevins, who does all of the artwork for uh, Hades, or he did all the artwork for Hades Town and the Brightness. And that is very apparent. Well, I feel like it's I, that I've like been lucky to meet people that there was a intuitive connection that has evolved over time. Hmm. There's a crazy story about Peter, Austin's brother, who um, has done all this artwork for me. And I also, like, the reason, so the reason I found Peter was I was rehearsing with Austin in his apartment in Boston, like, many years ago, and I saw this Gillian Welch poster where she's sitting in the crescent moon and playing the banjo. Yeah, I remember that one. It was like a silkscreen thing, and I said, who made that? And Austin said, my brother. So I reached out to him, and the um, Hades sound art that he did was so, like, that was such a mystical process of working with him on that. Like, I had seen this one print he'd made that looked to me like the Persephone character, and I said, hey, can I use that, and can you also make these portraits of these other characters in the show? Mm -hmm. And he said yes, and each of the characters, he would give them sort of an, an object. Like, he gave Hades this little songbird, and um, he gave the fates, like, a pair of scissors and some film. We mostly would talk about, like, what those objects would be, but he brought me that Eurydice illustration, and it had... She was holding a flower, and I didn't know why. I asked him about it, and he's like, I don't know, it just felt right. And it's sort of a poppy-looking flower. I was working on some new song, like the album wasn't finished yet, and I wrote that song Flowers because of the illustration he had made. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so it really was like we were collaborating this way where I feel, and this happens with mythology, but where it's almost like just like unearthing a thing from the ground or the thing about the sculpture in the stone, like the sculpture's already mm -hmm. there, and he happened to like chip away at the shoulder of the thing. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like, of course, flower. That's the image that she needs. Wow. So, yeah. That's amazing. That cool. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, get to my Hadestown cues. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Hadestown, you've been working on it for 12 years. The story that I feel like you've told me is that you you and your friends or your artist friends in Vermont, you had this really cool community of musicians and artists, and you were, like, bored one winter because you didn't mm. have a TV. Yeah. So you wrote a folk opera. Yeah. There's something to that. Like, it is very... Um, isolating and in, in the winter in Vermont it's very cold and long people go like a little stir crazy if you ever go to a party in Vermont in like February it's totally nuts and so yeah it, it was a special time I was living with my partner Noah in Montpelier and he had this cafe with some of his friends the Lane Street Cafe oh yeah that was place was red so beautiful it was like a real it was almost like what's that musical about Brig oh, Brigadoon where it just like popped up and then like it lasted for however seven years or something and then it disappeared oh, wow. but it was a whole world you know and yeah. people you just go and everyone was always there and all our like artist music musician friends would come through town and play that cafe and it really like made a lot of things happen I think Haiti Sound wouldn't have happened if it weren't for that cafe wow. um, that's cool yeah that's how it started out. You applied for a grant, and that like made, you're like, okay, I need to do this now. Totally. And when I think about how much that grant was, so this is like a good like plug for just support for the arts, right? When I think about how much it was, it wasn't that much money, you know. But at the time, 
it felt like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. <laughs> like, now I have to make this folk opera, you know? Right. There's something, t- I feel like there is something to the kind of leap and the net will appear, or like if you, if you, that, th- that those small grants exist for artists, like people will make things happen on a shoestring, you know? And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we did. Like we really didn't have that much money. And now going to Broadway is so exciting. You've just been working on it like I said, for a dozen years. Um, What can you say about this experience in terms of, like, working on something for so long uh, and so hard and really working hard towards this goal? Um, Yeah. It's so gratifying that we're going to Broadway because of having put so much time in, you know, and it feels, like, so exciting to get to share the results of that with, like, a bunch of people. I wouldn't have kept working on it for as long as I have if it weren't for the collaborators, the ones that you mentioned, and also Rachel Chavkin, this director I've been working with in New York, like has kind of kicked my ass for the past five years um, just to keep approaching the best version of itself that it can be. And, yeah, I at times it has felt really crazy to just be still working on the thing. And some of the songs are, I wrote them in my middle 20s and I I, like all the cells of my body have regenerated (laughs) two times since then and I I just wouldn't write that song now you know but it is what it is and I can't mess with it and then other ones I kind of I feel like yeah like I know a way to make that better or to make it serve the piece better it's a little tricky because people have a relationship with different versions of it like people have a relationship with the album and the show that's happening now is like twice as long and it's quite different mm. and um people have a relationship with like off broadway because we made a recording of that also and i have to keep on um breaking things that i think people are attached to but um but i ultimately feel like it's it's becoming a more true version of itself or a more full version of itself i want to talk about the 2016 election hadestown kind of went viral with why we built the wall because of Trump's campaign promise of building a wall. I want to know how you feel about that situation now, now that you've had some time to be removed from it. I'm not sure that I was under the impression that Haiti Sound had gone viral, but maybe it, I guess, right, the thing started to resonate in a different way for people. Yeah. Because of the wall stuff. And it still is that way, I guess. Cause it's, and I thought that that wall stuff was going to just be a campaign thing that disappeared, but actually it's still going. Yeah, it's tricky because I, I didn't write that song about him, you know, and I certainly think of Hadestown as, like, not primarily a piece of protest art. Like, primarily I think of it as, like, a poetry piece, and it's about archetypes, and it's about poetry, of language, of music, of, like, character, of story. And part of that poetry is, like, political, but it doesn't see. It's not like, my statement is anti-Trump, you know? A a few times, like, in the rewriting process, I felt like, oh, am I supposed to, like, tailor this thing to the political moment that we're in? Mm. And then I'm like, you know, not really. Like, it is a myth. The world tailors itself to the myths, you know what I mean? Mm. And that just keeps coming around in different ways. I should figure out a way to talk about this if I have to do interviews for Broadway and stuff, you know? I've I thought think about that. you're probably going to be asked. Yeah. I should figure it out. I mean, it means something really different now than it used to. Yeah. But for me, I've been singing this song for 12 years. 
So it's a strange, you know. I know. Yeah, thing to reckon with. Um, I don't like to say that guy's name either, you know? Yeah. It's better to not, like, put yeah. energy towards him. It's easy for some, for people to grasp onto staying with your friends, the uh, Stuart and, you know, the, their older couple. Yeah. You know, it's it's something for them to grasp onto, and they can, like, relate right. to it, and they can understand it, and it's a way for them to get into it easily. Right. And to talk to you about it and whatnot. So I think that that might why that would appeal to more people and then and then that's kind of cycles in on itself that it's it's a very like it's a very simple song it's like so simple and there's so much repetition in it it's easy for people to grab onto it it's mm-hmm. like memorable for them yes and certainly my feeling about like oh I should play that song I do I felt that for years and part of it is like oh yeah in today's world it's like important but also it's like People want to hear it, you know, and if I don't play it, they ask for it. And so, yeah, it's a funny one. I do remember, okay, this is a better response to your initial question, Cindy. Like, I remember in 2016 somebody asking me, like, they said, like, the gist of what they were saying was it's good for Town that Trump is, like, I don't know, becoming president or... It's good for Haiti. Like, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like good exposure. Yeah, and I was people like, are gonna put no, two man, and two together. Yeah. is not good for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> it would be better if he would just go away. And that's gross to, like, connect those things. Mm-hmm. The success of your, like, music theater show with, I don't know, whatever. It, I, think it, I think that, that maybe those, the conversation started before... The ele- like the election actually happened, yeah. And then after the election actually happened, it was maybe maybe that's when I'm like, okay, let's stop, let's stop talking about him at all. Let's stop comparing right. Hades to yeah. him. Yeah. You know? The other thing that I should say is that like I remember when I wrote that song, which was in 2006. I was thinking, I was kind of thinking about um, global warming and climate change and. What if, you know, it was the trends that existed then that are now just like even more Hmm. and just like and a lot of displaced people and migrant people and that there's like a hordes of people at the door of the country that has more money and they're knocking at the door and like who among us is not going to be a little scared and want to be behind a wall, you know, Hmm. like I guess what I mean is the song and clearly like I'm not pro that (laughs) like politically but I, but I think the song was meant to be more of an emotional question, maybe more of a question than a soapbox, per se. It really is a series of questions, and obviously the the cumulative like effect of them is messed up because it's this circular, weird logic that mm. doesn't doesn't quite make sense. Um, but I guess so. I guess what I want to say is that. The people that are like, build a wall, and that are scared of, you know, immigrants and stuff, there's there's so much misinformation and fear that's going into that stuff. But there also is a reality to that. Like, the, you know, I, I think the other question or the other song that touches on that stuff in the show is that when the chips are down song. Because it's like there's one worldview that says, you know, when the chips are down, you're going to look out for yourself and you're gonna turn on other people Mm. and that's I guess the question right are we gonna do that or not right what are we gonna do you don't know until 
It's happening. Right. Yeah. And it is happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In a a sense. Yeah. It is happening. Right. I just wanted to know about your relationship and connection to the characters in Hadestown. So if there's one character in Hadestown who's you've had the most like complicated evolved relationship with who would that be and why Mm, mm. well the one character that I'm still really working on is the Orpheus character like that's been the hardest character by far to write and I think partly because I do identify with him as a as an artist and there's a thing he's been he's like working on in the show where he's um he's work, he's writing these epic songs that are supposed to explain the world you know mm. <laughs> they're kind of this microcosm of like someone who works in myth or works in the arts like is doing is like trying to like make sense of the world and i'm still rewriting that shit like i cannot finish it i mean it's and it's it's a joke at this point you know there's like so there's so many versions of it i spent like years and years writing this thing and it's called the, and they're called the epics, which is really funny because it's <laughs> so epic trying to write them. Um, and he also is a really tough character to write because he's he's an idealist, you know, and a lover, and like a romantic, and like all these things that um, a belie- you know he believes that the world is going to provide, and it's so hard to take that person seriously. I think that's been the challenge of a few versions of this thing and that has come up in reviews about the writing of the show and stuff. It's like, it's hard to take an idealist seriously. Hmm. It's much easier to buy a character like Hades or Persephone or Eurydice or Hermes. I wanted to talk about Noah. Do you talk about Noah in interviews? I don't know if anyone's ever asked me, but how do you talk about Noah? Yeah. uh, Oh, hey. We were going to talk about Noah. 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 Uh, where's my question? <coughs> so I was listening to some interviews where you talk about your husband, your partner. You were talking about being in Vermont in, on September 11th, and Noah was somewhere, not in Vermont. So you've been with Noah for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I met him when uh, I was 19. Uh, I was a freshman in college, and he was a senior. We You're 23 now, so... I'm 23, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was crazy, and I just was, like, fell in love with him then, and we had, like, we spent the summer together after that. He was in Vermont when September 11th happened, and, cause, and so he's from New York, and he was supposed to have driven back there, and that happened, and he was on campus visiting me. I remember very clearly... We slept, we used to sleep out on the roof of this one social house. So there's like these, so, oh, this is so, sounds gross, but there's like, it's not quite a frat, it's a social house, right? But it was for like weirdos. The goth frat. I was like, yeah, it was a weirdo frat. And there was a roof and we put like a, a mattress out there and we slept out there on the night of September 11th and there was all these stars. And it sounds silly now. But at the time, I remember there was, like, anthrax in the subways, or there was that mm. rumor of that. Do you remember? Yes. And it was, like, we thought maybe everyone would die, or it was, like, the end of the world as we knew it or something. Right. But that moment, and, like, we were the stars, and a guy was playing the saxophone in, in the street. Wow. And it's September 11th, and Noah goes, do you want to have a baby? And I was, like, yes. And then... But then we didn't do that for, like, many years. But that was our, like, response to that thing happening. 
let's have a baby. It was so strange. Wow. It was just a strange thing. And then... Um, Tell me, last night, when you moved to Texas. We moved to Austin. Yeah. Austin. Yeah, I'm here. Austin. He's here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we moved to Austin because I was kind of like, what am I doing? I'm in love with this guy, and I'm here at this weird college, and like, I want to play folk music. <laughs> we moved to Austin because he was campaign. He was like um, canvassing for this environmental organization at the time, and you could work in various cities. Like there were, you know, so there's one office in Austin, and um, I was into it because it was like live music capital of the world, and the Kerrville Folk Festival was there, and I wanted to check that out. So then, like, we moved. I went back to school. We were on and off for a while. But he was always, like, the one. And I had met him so young. And I think it kind mm. of freaked me out because I was like, I'm 19. And then we reconnected um, our early kind of era of living together in Vermont was when that cafe was getting started. And we got married pretty young also, um, 24, 25. Sweet. So. And he is also a musician. Yes, he plays the bass. And he plays with you sometimes. Yeah, he played with me, um, especially during this one era of the Young Man in America tour. Like, he was in the Young Man band. Oh, okay. And he played Great. bass. Great. Yeah. I wanted to talk about a couple of different music communities that you are involved in. Um, first, I want to talk about Club Passim. I read this quote from you that said that Passim which is in Cambridge, Mass., has done more for your career development, at least early on, than any other venue. What was the story for you in Club Passim? Yeah. I remember going to Club Passim at the age of 18. I took, like, a bus ride to Boston. From Vermont? Yeah, from Vermont. I was going to check out Boston. I ended up there on the night of, like, the campfire at Club Passim. It was maybe the very first one that... They did, and so yeah. for listeners who don't know what that is, like that's um, the campfire. It's like a weekend, usually a long weekend. I think like Memorial Day, Day and Memorial, Labor Day. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like jam packed with like many, many, many artists. It's it's like, like a showcases. marathon. Yeah, yeah, of showcases. People in the round mostly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I I remember seeing Edie Carey. Yeah, and. The room Smiley got excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, it just blew my mind. I was like, that is what I want to do. Like, I knew it so, I wanted it so bad the moment I saw it. And, oh, wow. um, and I ended up, actually, I took a year, I took like a gap year after high school before college, and I moved to Boston because of Club Passim, because I was so, like, into it. I would go to the open mic there. Uh, so that was the first thing. Like, I would go to the open mic, and I was terrified. I would, like, my hands would shake, and I, like, couldn't breathe. <laughs> but I kept going, you know, so I... Um, uh, it was such, like, a warm and supportive place to to play and mm. to get to know people. And then I took some classes at the school that was uh, upstairs. I took a fingerstyle guitar class. I took a songwriting class. And I took, like, yeah, I, I, I really, like, kind of milked it. And then when I started to play for real, like, Matt Smith is just, like, the most amazing creature on earth. And yeah, Matt Smith, he, he's the manager of the club. He books it. And has been for so long, as long mm -hmm. as I can remember. Same, And yeah. he's still there. And he still loves music and, like, loves his job, it seems like. It's weird. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, Matt. Matt. The room likes Matt. Love you. Yeah. And he gave me just, like, so many lovely, you know, opening, being able to, like, open for people get in front of people and and um and then co bills and then to play my own show and and then to play two shows or whatever <laughs> and um 
Yeah, I mean, it's so important, like, people that are in that position that are able to... I really feel like there's so many um, opportunities that I got before I was ready for them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, And that's how it has to... That's how it has to be. Like, you have to get them before you're ready for them and just do your best (laughs) to get... And then do it again. Yeah. And so that's what Matt Smith, you know, offered. Cool. That's where I first saw you at the Gillian Welch tribute night. You played April the 14th. Oh, cool. That's such a good song. And I just, song. like, at the end of the song, I was, like, picking my jaw up off the floor. Aww. And I was so that psyched. That song is so amazing. That was a very, that made a huge impression on me, that song. There's been a resurgence of her song, Everything is Free. I've noticed that. Yeah. Phoebe Bridges is playing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it may be all, there's like a tie-in, because that song is about Napster. Right. So maybe it was just sort of like a tie-in of like such a strange time for music, because it was when things were really transitioning to, where you couldn't, you, it was it was different on how you could make money. That, I, I haven't heard that word, Napster, Napster. in a really long time. It sounds so ridiculous, right? Yeah. It sounds like you're stealing. Totally. Napster. Totally. Yeah. That uh, was during the time of the third movement. Oh, yeah, the third wave of feminism. Third wave of <laughs> file sharing. Um, cool. Well, I think this is a great place to end. Um, we've had a really wonderful time here with Anais Mitchell in our first live recording where we have a studio audience. Yay. Where we... Yeah, there's so many people here. Um, We hung out and we did the interview. Totally. Thank you so much for doing it. Of course. Yeah. Thanks, Anais. Pleasure. All right. There we go. Our conversation with Anais Mitchell. Wild, right? Also, thanks. I forgot to mention Austin Nevins um, uh, was chiming in. Austin is a really great guitar player who plays with a lot of different people, including Anais Mitchell. And he was in town with her. They were playing a show at the Carnegie Lecture Hall in Pittsburgh. Um, so it was great to have him in in the studio audience. <laughs> and one more time, thank you to our sponsors. <clears throat> Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love hearing new artists, she thinks you will like the fresh sounds of McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean.co slash Basic Folk or on Instagram at McDean Sings. Thanks to Laura McCarthy for her support on the podcast and Alex Stanton for doing our music. I'm Cindy House, and thank you for listening to Basic Folk. Bye.